0: Unions are under a lot of pressure these days. Whether it's corporations facing intense competition from low-cost countries overseas, or state and municipal governments facing intense budget cuts, unions are taking the brunt of the cutbacks. Perhaps no union is facing more pressure than the UAW. It's lost hundreds of thousands of members in just the last few years due to the bankruptcies and restructuring at GM Ford and Chrysler, as well as with their traditional suppliers. Some analysts say that unless the UAW adds back most of those jobs, it will not be able to sustain itself over the long run. That's why union organizing is at the forefront of the UAW's efforts these days, and that's why I've invited my guest to come on today's show. She is in charge of organizing suppliers and public and health care employees for the UAW. Cindy Estrada is a vice president of the union, one of only six members who sit on the executive board, reporting directly to the union's president, Bob King. A longtime union organizer and social activist, she's also the first Latina elected as a UAW vice president. If you want to learn more about how the UAW plans to organize suppliers, its strategy for protecting the jobs of state and municipal workers, and its general outlook of what's going on in the labor movement, stay right where you are. We'll get going in just a moment.
1: From our studios in the Motor City, this is AutoLine. Here now is John McElroy.
0: Thanks for joining us here in the studio with my guest today, Cindy Estrada, the vice president at the UAW in charge of organizing suppliers as well as Uh, public and health care workers, and it's great to have you here on the set of AutoLine with us today, Cindy. Thank you. Also joining us is Elisa Priddle with the Detroit News and Joe Sesney with the Oakland Press. Great having the both of you here, too. Uh, I I should preface everything by saying you don't handle any of the issues with GM Ford and Chrysler, so we're not going to be peppering you with those kinds of questions, but let's start with suppliers. Uh, That's got to be a big battle, trying to get suppliers to agree to be organized uh, by the the United Auto workers Union how 's that going? Because you know when I talk to supplier CEOs they don 't seem like they really are pushing to be organized
1: which is a shame because I think the reason why workers organize in the first place is important it 's not because they don 't like their company. It's because they want to have a voice in how things are run. And they feel if they have a seat at the table that they can have an actual, have a more successful company. So unfortunately, I wish that CEOs would see that and, and be in some of those rooms when I'm talking to workers and how much they really do care about making improvements. But
0: the CEOs I hear from are just afraid it's going to raise costs. Their wages and benefits are going to go up. Work rules are going to come in. They're going to lose flexibility. That's what I hear, not that they're concerned the workers have a voice in the process.
1: And that's a shame, too, because I think the U.S has shown over and over again in the contracts we're negotiating today, there's, you know, there's tons of efficiency and flexibility, because workers, again, understand what they need to have a successful, profitable company. Um, and I think workers are really smart, too. They certainly don't want to negotiate wages and benefits that are going to put them out of, the jo- out of a job. But what they do want is an, uh, you know, to have some skin in the game so that they will be able to walk out and provide for their family.
2: How did you get involved in the union? Can you explain a little bit about your background? Well, how you came, it's
1: came- a long story. I think well, I, don't make it too long. I know. It's only a half, <laughs> half hour, But let's hear so, it. <laughs> but I, I, um, I actually went to work for the farm workers as an organizer. My family, um, some of my family were farm workers, and I always knew that I wanted to work for Cedar Chavez's union. So from there, coming back, I started working in an embroidery shop here, waiting to teach, actually, in high school, when Mexican Industries was going on as a campaign of 1,200 workers. And we should
0: explain, Mexican Industries was a supplier company in the Detroit area that made car parts.
1: To the big three. And so it was from there. After running that campaign, that I realized. Why did the this workers at Mexican
2: industry come to the UAW in the first place?
1: That, you know, the exact same reason I explained, and this was like 15, 16 years ago, was because their company was in trouble. They could see it. It was being. It wasn't the company Hank Aguirre had owned it before. It was very successful. He was very much involved in the operation. His daughters took over mismanaged. Workers are seeing it on the shop floor, and they wanted to have a voice in making sure that it stayed successful to follow Hank and Gary's vision. And um, unfortunately, they lost the first time. I think they would have been able to turn the company around, um, but they, uh, it was too late by the time they won. It had been mismanaged and ended up closing.
0: So you got involved in Mexican industries. How did you ultimately end up at the UAW? Well,
1: that was through, that was in the U. I was working in an embroidery shop, and from I got pulled out on that campaign. And then, um, I just loved what I was doing. I, I, I could see it change. I was mo- mostly dealing with a lot of women in campaigns. And um, I was watching women become much more um, involved in their life and what was happening to them. And it was, it was great to watch that. It was great to be a part of that. And, and I certainly didn't do it. It was watching workers stand up and speak um, about what they were passionate about, which was making sure that they had a job that they could provide for their family that they felt good about going to.
2: But a lot more of the supply base is now internationalized. Over the, especially now since the uh, since the recession has happened, a lot of the supplier companies, have, a lot of the uh, overseas suppliers, suppliers companies have taken over a lot more of the uh, American supply base. How are they to deal with, and how, what kind of strategy is the union putting in place to to deal with some of these companies?
1: I mean, one I, I know. Um Many have heard about it is we 're not looking at running elections like we were before that we want to have a fair process, the system is broken, so one of our strategies is we 'll help workers organize, but we 're going to continue we 're not going to buy into the NLRb campaign that 's unfair and not set up to to really work on behalf of workers and, and create a democratic process so a strategy is to to use these um, campaign principles that we ask companies to to um, engage in with us. The second one is the companies Overseas, in in a lot of cases, treat their workers and their unions very different. For some reason, there's there's an impression that you can come here to the United States, and our labor laws are so poor that you can just, you know, fight the workers when they want to form a union and and violate the law.
3: Is that why um, a lot of Bob King's efforts are now to have more kind of synergies or collaborations? And, And they're not necessarily to sort of gang up on any particular automaker, but more a case of sort of raising. Um, the, the quality of workers' lives, generally speaking, kind of a broader initiative.
1: Yeah, and I think, I mean, I think Bob is 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 doing a lot of that, and we are as an executive board, but I think it's a, a part of the, it's been a part of the UAW for a long time, right? Um, I think that we're just putting more resources, more time to make sure that, um, you know, it, this isn't just about UAW workers. This is, like you said, about raising you know, all workers. And we know when there's more density in organized labor, then wages come up and benefits come up.
2: What about collaboration with uh, unions overseas? How is that uh, coming along? I, I mean, think, I think that's been one of the weak points for the UAW is that it has, hasn't had a strong think, alliances in the past.
1: I think it's um, a weak point, somewhat of ours, but I think it's a weak point globally for all of us as unions, because we've never seen the need as much to, to work to, together. We, we, we collaborate together and we discuss issues together, but now we're facing the same issues. Temporary workers, for example, precarious workers, is happening globally right? We are coming, not just in the United States, but globally, countries that want to have temporary workers without the same kind of wages and benefits. We're creating a whole different society. I think all unions globally now are starting to see that we're only going to solve that issue together. We need to take that on together. But so, are you
0: trying to prevent uh, we're, uh, companies from hiring temporary workers, or are you just trying to get a better deal well, I'll tell for you what, those towns?
1: I would like someone to go investigate the transplants down in, in the South, and you'll start to see that it's becoming 30, 40, 50 percent temporary workers. So, yeah, it, eventually, it's something that, is there a reason to have temporary workers for vacation replacements or with restrictions? You know, certainly we negotiate that all the time. Do we want to have, you know, more than a majority of the workers or most of the workers temporary? I don't think that's the kind of society that, that's not the kind I want to raise my kids in. I want them to know that they have a job and that they have it if they want to keep it for a lifetime or or walk away if they do, but the opportunity should be there.
0: How's your organizing efforts going? Are you having success? And the reason I ask it is I think the, the country is well aware that a lot of union jobs have been lost at GM, Ford, and Chrysler. I don't think they're aware of how many have been lost on the supplier side. When you look at some of the traditional UIW-organized suppliers, Delphi, Visteon, Dana, American Axle hundreds of thousands of jobs have disappeared there. Are you able to make any of that up? How is your organizing efforts you know, we're, going?
1: We're starting to, um, you know, we are we have plans that you'll be seeing very shortly where we're gonna be running um, more campaigns, more national campaigns on suppliers. And so, um, and right now, a part of it is is just to sit back and, and not sort of run out there half-cocked, but what is a, a strategy that makes sense? How do we involve the union workers that are there now in helping roll that out? And, um, and making sure that we just have a really good, solid plan. You know, no one has the best plan, but... Um, well, tell us a little bit about your plan. Well, I, I, can't I give don't it all want away. to give okay. it all away, okay. no.
0: <laughs> But you launched this soon, and you're going after, what, a bunch of suppliers?
1: Um, I think some key, some key corporations right now, um, where we have some of them organized, um, where we think that uh, if we had more density, it would help those existing workers, but also help in that product line. Um, but I'll tell you, there's a, there's a problem, right? I, one thing is we're getting more calls than normal from suppliers, from workers. And part of it is, is because suppliers caught, you know, they're driven down to such a low cost um, that workers are literally walking out the door making $10, $11 an hour and being eligible for for food stamps and for subsidies in the state. That's a big problem happening in the United States right now that we need to address because taxpayers, as we're having these state fights saying that our states are going broke, um, citizens are, are, are funding companies who are very successful, but not paying their workers enough to, to, to make it without a subsidy. Well, so that
2: drives up government costs then. I by. I
3: and I think that was one of your concerns with the American Axle, And it kind of goes back to what you were saying at the beginning about you want workers to have a say, but the American Axle closing their Detroit facilities, you were working for months with them, trying to have the workers have their say and come up with a proposal. And it just,
1: yeah, that was... that with deaf ears? <laughs> you know, very sad. I think a lot of time the union is accused of not changing with the times. I think that um, that would be the accusation that I would make about American Acts. So those workers sat down, created, um, took an agreement that was 365 pages and reduced it to 86. Um, it had more flexibility, more efficiency. All they wanted was to make sure that their wage was enough that would allow them to walk out the door and not collect a subsidy, which is about $1,397. Um, but what thirteen ninety
0: seven was their their wage? No,
1: no, I'm saying thirteen ninety seven makes you eligible in a family of four to collect the subsidy in the state of Michigan in all states actually. But, That's food stamps, um, food stamps you're talking right, stamps. about, right? Right. Yeah. Um, but American Axel really what they wanted, they've come back to those workers. This was the third time now saying they needed a market competitive agreement. Um, and so how many times can you come back and say, okay, we have enough, and then you know the next year you're back again? And we feel like we had a competitive agreement. Um, an American Axle you know saw that they could do the work cheaper in Mexico. And but you really also have another about. plant
0: in Michigan that had lower wages than the one in Detroit. Right, so and they, how, wanted, how they, wanted,
1: they wanted us. Um, one is um, I'm a new vice president of suppliers, and I have a different vision, and, and, and we do as a board. And, the, you know, there, that plant has a 16 years to top out. They start out at $10 an hour. It takes you 16 years to make it to top rate. And so I was not willing to do that. I don't think that that's fair to workers. I don't think that's fair to have two separate groups of workers working in a, a plant like that doing similar work. Now, I, don't, I, I think it's fair to have a progression. I think it's fair to make sure that you're competitive with other components in the area. Um, and I, I, I think that's what we laid out to Dick Dowk at American Axle that we, you know, Dana's an Axle plant. Let's look at the Dana agreement and look at other Axle agreements because I don't want to pick winners and losers. But he didn't want to do that. He wanted to compare his axle plants only and not look at what else was happening in the industry. And I didn't think that was fair for workers.
2: Now you've got an initiative going in Mexico. Can you explain a little bit about that? What, what's going on there? What what the union is plan, trying to do there?
1: So that's fairly new. But one of the things is we have um, an organizer working full time in Mexico right now, really starting to just see where it is that we can work together with different unions. There's so many unions out there. So part of it is just research and looking at which unions are um, are doing a lot of organizing, which union Unions are not sort of government unions, but real unions where workers have a real democratic voice in it. And so then looking at, in those unions, where can we run campaigns and suppliers together? Where can we help them when they're sitting at the table and weigh in? So Johnson Controls, for example, there was a group of workers organizing there. So we were able to help by um, having conversations with Johnson Controls, our membership as well as the leadership, and um, making sure that those workers were treated fairly.
0: How do you... uh Uh, approach this whole issue of uh, organizing suppliers because car companies are under enormous pressure from consumers who have so much choice they can shop to whatever kind of price they want. So the car companies put enormous pressure on their suppliers, just try to crush them on price, which in turn leads them to try to cut costs on everything, not just labor, but price of materials, machinery and all that other sort of stuff, too. How does the UAW take that into consideration instead of, and I understand you're trying to help the workers, but it's a big issue It's really
1: difficult, and I struggle with that every day. One way that we try and work through that is, you know, we we work with GM and their purchasing department in terms of just having conversations about efficiencies and where we can help our suppliers. but I, I struggle with it because I understand that argument, but I don't understand corporations, and this happens to me over and over, that sit down with me. I'll, you know, I'll name you one, TRW, $24 million, that CEO, CEO just took home. He wants to take the workers from uh, 16 something down to $10 an hour. Now, if competitively, if that makes sense, then we'll sit down and talk, it, maybe. But when you're making $24 million and you're telling me it's because the OEM is putting pressure on you to lower the cost, where are you, where's the shared sacrifice from the top management? That's what I want to see. Because I don't think someone should have the opportunity to do business in the United States unless they have the responsibility to pay workers enough where they can at least make their bills.
3: But this is going to be a problem negotiating at every level. I mean, I know you're not here to talk about the big three, but, you know, I mean, when a Malali has $56 million just in stock options, I mean, this is something that, all many CEOs have these huge um, wages and, and bonus packages compared to their workers I,
1: right. How you ever get
3: around that issue? You know,
1: and that's why I think this isn't just a UAW fight. I mean, it's your fight as as a citizen, as a taxpayer of the state. I mean, this is a problem that we have to address. I don't have all the answers. I'm I'm trying to, to learn from a lot of people what some of those answers are. But it's not just an issue of we need to keep these companies competitive. That would be our piece as workers. We need to do our share in that. But then I need CEOs from suppliers to pitch in. I need the OEM to step up to the plate and to say that if a door is going on their car, then I think they have a social responsibility to make sure that that supplier can pay enough that those workers can support their families. And And I mean support. I do the bills on these wages at $11 an hour. People, if you add it up and be very conservative on what it costs to pay your, your bills, they end up $100 in the hole a week.
0: Right, but of course you're looking at uh, their hourly wage. Uh, in the case of the axle workers, they also had twenty dollars an hour in terms of benefits. So th- you know, thirty plus, you know, it, that that comes out to sixty thousand dollars a year. Why can't you just go in and say, look, let's flip some of these benefits into and, wages? And we,
1: and we did some of that, and it, it, it's it's not that high now. I mean, it, and so we did some of that. But you also got, I mean, talk about benefits. We're only talking about wages. So take an eleven dollar a job, or eleven dollar an hour job. They're paying eighty twenty on insurance, right? And you have a family. And, and some of these workers are paying $36, $50 a week out in, in just their premium share. So it's even worse than what I'm saying, you know? So the benefits, I'll tell you, aren't that rich. And where they are and where they don't make sense and where they're not competitive, workers step up to the plate all the time because in the end of the day, they want to have a job but they just wanna have a job that allows them to support their family, or so, even just themselves. Forget the family. Like, how do we just get a job that will support the individual that actually works the eight hours to 10 hours a day?
3: So how challenging it is it when you do come up with an agreement that you think is competitive, but they still look at the CEO making um, you know, 24 million? Like, how do you sort of cross that breach for the person who just thinks that as long as they're making that kind of money, nothing that the union negotiates for me sounds fair?
1: Um, Because I think that most workers, you know, they understand that this is a bigger issue and that we're not going to solve it in one set of negotiations. and so I think people understand that's why we need to organize and make sure that we have more of a voice in, in, in these issues. So I, I think it's hard. I, we, we have challenges about that. It's going to be hard with Malali. But uh, the other argument- yeah, yeah, but yeah. here's the difference
0: with Malali. Ford went through a string of CEOs and the company was going nowhere. It was drifting. It was, in fact, it was going downhill real fast. They threw a whole bunch of different execs at the thing. They couldn't fix it. Then they pulled this one guy out of Boeing, put him in charge. And he has transformed the company. A
1: guy like that, in my book, is worth a billion dollars. And I've met him, and I've, you know, and I've seen just not personally. I mean, I've seen the work. He's great for Ford. Mm -hmm. The question, and so is some the CEO for TRW. The question is when you're paying suppliers such a low cost that they can't make their bills, is that too much? I'm not saying he should make a lot of money. But I'm just not sure it's that much money.
2: But the other argument is, is that the, a competitive wage actually helps create jobs, which I know something, is something else the UAW is interested in. So how do you balance that? How do you balance that if, I mean, if the CEO during the negotiation says, well, if you give us $12 an hour, we can also add 200 or 300 jobs to, the, to this operation. What, how do you balance that?
1: Um, you know, it's, I'm going to tell you, it's, it's not easy, it's very difficult, um, and you know, it depends on what the product commitment is, but I don't, I don't balance it quietly. Um, I'm angry about it, and I'm going to continue to be angry about it, and people call me naive, but I believe that we can create a country where we can do both, where people, people can make enough to survive, and I'm not even saying middle class. I, I, I don't even know that we can, I mean, that's sort of reaching high though I think that's the right thing to do. I mean, we're, this is $12 an hour, and none of us sitting here at this table have to make that. And I, I think everybody should have to go out, those CEOs, and live on that for just a week and see how their belly feels and what it's like to look at their children. So I don't know how we do it yet. We're trying to figure it out. We look at product commitment. We, you know, there's a lot of decisions that have to be made, but it's very, let me tell you, it's heartbreaking.
2: Because okay. I know there's be a, sure. there is a lot of um, uh, frustration among your own members about the fact that the union seems to be drifting into this into this uh Position where it favors jobs over wages, and um, I I mean that's. And I think,
1: and I think you, I think that um, we're looking at not doing that. How do we stay fair, but we want the company to also stay in business and not to lose work to somebody who's non-union? And so we do balance all that. The other way that we're looking at, I know you brought up profit sharing. We just did that with Dana. We're pushing that a lot. That how do we give workers more skin in the game so that they can make up for some of that money that they're that we're not able to, to bargain or their committees aren't. So. A lot of companies are are more open to that. They know it certainly was. And they see the value when workers share in the profit, then they share in the desire to to make this a successful company. Have you ever
0: talked to these companies about paying at least part of the profit sharing in stock? Because it seems to me it's a lot easier for a company to print stock than it is to print money.
1: Um, I haven't personally had that many conversations. I know Magna does some of that. Um, And so... I mean, is it's that something that something. Push? Because,
0: of course, there's a risk in taking stock. The price of it can go down. Right, right. But, like I said, I, my, my guess is you could get management to cough up even more money if some of it came in the form of
1: stock. You know, that, that's a way to look at it. One way I've been looking at it is tying it to management's goals, right? So if management is, is reporting something to their board of directors, then, then workers should have a, a piece of that if they meet those goals together. And that way it's really open, it's really transparent, and um, if they meet them, everybody everybody does well because the workers are part of management meeting those goals. And if they don't, then nobody does. So how do we tie it to managements as well?
3: Well, and is there also the risk? I mean, unions in the past have often um, not wanted profit sharing because their base wages just didn't go up. Um, is there sort of a recognition right now that base wages, there isn't that much room for them to move? And that's why profit sharing is at least an alternative to get more money into people's hands. And
1: again, I think it depends on the company and the corporation that you're dealing with and where they're at. It depends on, um, on the component and what the rate is right now. And a lot of it depends. I mean, we don't have the wages in the components because, of, again, we don't have the rest of the industry organized. So right. and, I mean, that's, density is key to being able to to move the price of um, what they're ever to pay in South, South Carolina versus a union shop in, you know, Ohio or...
0: Cindy, what's your overall sense of the country's view on unions? I, I see two things, you know, one camp that is just like, you know, those are the idiots to use the, the, the term I've heard a lot that dragged the industry down. On the other hand, we're seeing a lot of people saying, wait a minute, uh, on state levels with municipal employees and teachers, we don't like all these cuts. And there, there seems to be, you know, uh, growing support for unions on that side. But what, what's your overall view of how the country views unionization.
1: You know, in the last year, looking, I think that there's a—I'm a, seeing an improvement. Um, I'm seeing—people are starting to still see real people. During the auto crisis, I think a lot of times people wanted to see it just as, like, one person or Ron or someone, and they forgot that a union is made up of the workers. And I think these state fights have shown—we've seen more people who are just like you and me, where you—it's it's the workers that are the union. The leadership, you know, makes those decisions with them, but and we see it in teachers, we see it in nurses and doctors. So I think people are starting, especially younger generation, are starting to see that a union is them, and um, and I think that helps.
2: Are you going to be involved in the recall campaigns in uh, Wisconsin that are coming up uh, with state work where they? They're going to want to change the composition of the uh, Wisconsin Senate.
1: Yeah, we're the UAW actually, is. I'm not personally, but we have staff out there that works in, in our region for our director, Ron McEnroy. And we're very much involved in the Wisconsin and we go out to support.
2: How's that campaign going to come out, do you think?
1: Well, you know, I, I my hope is that it, it, it I think I think people are going to speak up and they're going to say that this is not what we had in mind when we elected you. In fact, we, we, want, we want to be represented, and, and they're not being represented, and I think we're going to see that. I think it's going to be successful, but I think it's going to take a lot of work. And maybe the success won't come as quick as we all want, but it's really changed the way people see their role in, in politics. It's exciting. You and know, there have also- been other,
0: uh, other women in uh, uh, the labor movement who have risen to very high positions. It's, it's not— uh, you're not the only one woman to have risen to a high-level position in the UAW, but it's not very common. What did you have to do to overcome this, this male bias in both the union and the auto industry to get where you are?
1: <laughs> I grew up with a lot of males. <laughs> <laughs> I have a few boys. You know? You know I'm an organizer. And I think, you know, what I did is I have just always been honest in the union about where I felt that we needed to be in terms of organizing. I, you know, I'm not afraid to not say they'll tell you this. Most of the board, which is mostly male, that I'm not afraid to say what I think. And and then I think in the end, people respect that. They know where you're coming from. And and, uh, we have a great IEB right now, our, our, our whole board. What's IEB? So I, it's the International Executive Board of the UAW. It's all the vice presidents and directors. And, and, um, and everyone is focused on organizing. And I think they appreciate the fact that there's an organizer on the board. And there's a number of us on the board now. And so, um, you know, it's, it's a, we're, we're not... Isn't that dying. the number one
0: goal of the UAW now? <laughs> you need more members. We
1: need more members, so we need to organize. You know, and we need to continue to be involved in not just fights that direct our, directly affect our members.
2: How right? is how is Bob uh, Mr. King's campaign on the uh, on organizing the transplants coming along? Since you're part of the strategy group that puts this together,
1: it, it's it's coming along.
2: I mean, do you have a? <laughs> there's,
3: there's not a target still. I mean, is it, it are uh, you still of the stance that one as long that as, wanna... as everyone's talking, you're not publicly naming a target, or or is Volkswagen
1: a target? Um, you know, I like to say they're all targets.
0: <laughs> well, I don't think we're going to pry, you know, the inner planning of the UAW out of Cindy right now. But, Cindy Estrada, thanks so much. And
1: for I'm going to be around a long time. They are all targets. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> She's young. yeah. Right.
0: Thanks so much for coming on AutoLine. It's been great having
1: thank you. Me. Thank you for having me.
0: Elisa Priddle with the Detroit News, Joe Sesney with the Oakland Press. Great having the both of you here today, too. Thank
1: you. And
2: thank I you. especially
0: want to thank all of you for having tuned in.